1: Welcome to Follow to Lead, a monthly journey into the world of Catholic education, exploring what it means to follow God in order to lead others to Him. This is our very first program, uh, of many, I hope. Uh, I'm Kyle Petrantonio, your co-host.
2: And I'm Father Randy Sly, and we would like to begin uh, each program with prayer, so let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Christ the teacher, teach us to listen, teach us to do the deep listening to the sounds of our soul, waiting to hear your voice calling to us to cast out deeper, to become fishers of men and women, shepherds of souls, to follow your will in order to lead others to the truth, beauty, and goodness only you can offer. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: Today uh, we have a very special guest. Uh, he and I go back uh, a long way, um, and we'll look forward to sharing some of, of, of that story uh, when we um, uh, get going. Uh, but Dr. Greg Bataro is here with us. Uh, Dr. Greg is the founder um, and and executive director Catholic Psych Institute, uh, based up in uh, Connecticut. Uh, Dr. Greg, um, we're so glad you could be with us today uh, as we begin our time together. Uh, we always like to start with hearing a little bit about yourself um, and, in particular, why Catholic education uh, has been an important part of, of your your life. So, Dr. Greg, welcome to the show.
3: Oh, thanks so much. It's awesome to be here. It's awesome to see you again. And, uh, yeah, we go way back to high school. And, um, you know, that was a difficult time in my life. We, we went to Catholic high school and I was, uh, you know, nominally Catholic at that point. And, you know, our faith was important growing up. But Um, in, in high school, my parents were going through a tough time they ended up getting a divorce, um, my senior year, right before going off to college. And, uh, I was, I was a little bit upside down for a little while because of that, but I was at Boston college and as a freshman at Boston college, um, I I was in philosophy with Dr. Peter Kreeft. I had a number of courses with him and, uh, he completely changed my life. It was in that environment surrounded by the faith surrounded by uh jesuit priests and and prayer and um just having the chapel to go to every day and confession to go to uh frequently as i needed to and 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 peter kreeft to unpack the the deep riches of our faith um through this intellectual formation and and i just realized that this is what i had been looking for this is what i was longing for and this is where even in my heart uh, as I was wounded in those ways that in in the family life, um, you know, struggles that I had been coming out of, you know, this, this was pointing me in that, in the direction of real healing. And so it was truth and goodness and beauty um, like father opened us up with in prayer. And, and all of that came together for me. So um, I, I, I owe so much of my own story journey foundation to, uh, God's grace flowing through that moment in my life, through the Catholic education that I had. Sure. Just
1: in following up, I know that uh, you didn't uh, finish at, at BC. You you discerned um, another path in in Catholic higher ed. Can you just share a little bit
3: about about that? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I I really went deep into the faith at that point and started unpacking so much more of what this meant for life, and I started discerning religious life. And uh, I also realized for where I was at um, you know, the, the, my, 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 my virtue and moral life was in a bit of a precarious state. And, um, you know, BC is a, a little bit of a larger campus. Boston is a very busy city and lots of distractions. And, um, I wanted to get to a place where I can maybe discern with a little more focus. So, um, I transferred out to Steubenville, Ohio, outside of Pittsburgh, uh, to Franciscan University of Steubenville. And, um, they had a little bit more emphasis on, on sort of a uh, discernment of religious life and theology. And um, I'm, you know, in, in, in years past uh, years, after I've gone past back to Boston college, and I've found that there's so much solid faith there too. It definitely would have been something I could have found there at that time, but where I was at in my immaturity, I needed a, a little bit more of a specific and, and more externalized focus on those things. So I transferred to Steubenville um, I graduated with a degree in philosophy and mental health, and then uh actually i I went on after that to discern religious life. I spent three and a half years with the Franciscan friars of the renewal uh they were a they're a um, a Franciscan group in New York City, and so that was the next phase of my life
2: and Dr. Gray, what was your experience there with the with the Franciscan friars? What was that like?
3: Oh, it was, it was, uh, it was so joyful. It was exhilarating. It was, it was, you know, sometimes I even look back and I, you know, and I miss some aspects of it. Um, it was just a a really solid place to grow in faith and understanding of God's will. I spent a lot of time with a priest psychologist who was one of the founders of the order, father Benedict Rochelle. Oh yeah. And just at a, a powerhouse. And, um, he He really opened up for me what this meant uh, this project of integration, which is really sort of my life obsession at this point vocationally and and professionally, so bringing together the sciences of psychology with our faith with our anthropology with this oneness of truth, and realizing that whether we're coming through our faith or through through science, faith and reason together unite to bring us to these transcendent realities of truth and so um Ultimately, that's what manifested in my life as my my professional vocation to uh, to become a psychologist, uh, specifically in this Catholic regard, and and one who integrates our faith with the practice.
1: Doctor Greg, you and I grew up in the same uh, little town in in Connecticut. Um, I'm curious how you would characterize. Um, uh, our 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 upbringing in that town, um, and and how it may have shaped some of your perspective and worldview, and and how you're choosing now to raise raise your own children.
3: Yeah, it's a it's a great question. It's it's so fun to have this uh, interview opportunity with you now. It's I feel like that's a, a life past, and um, mm-hmm. and to have that sort of come together here, it's like a full integration of where I've come from and where I am. So it's it's really a joy. It's great to see you. It's um. You know, it's interesting because we had a a good upbringing, you know, we we were in a good place, you know, good, decent families and, you know, we had the faith and it's kind of like the the sort of, you know, normal sort of upper middle class and, and just blue, a little blue collar, a little white collar, a little mixed, but like fairly healthy. And yet I still see and remember so much longing for more still the confusion, still the seeking, still the, you know, and then the pain and suffering that comes from like divorce, for instance, in my family. And what I, what I realize is we're all longing for the big picture answers and, and we have this desire for it. And like CS Lewis says, you know, if, if we find in ourselves this desire for something that can't be satisfied here, then the existence of something not here must be real. And so that's, you know, I, I look at that and say, like, okay, so there's a lot of stuff here to work with. There's a lot of good stuff in our humanity, in our culture, in our families, and it's like the building blocks are here, and we just have to we have to bring it to that next level. And that's what the revelation of Christ is so profoundly gifting us is this is 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 showing us what that next kingdom is really all about not in a way that diminishes or disregards our humanity in fact the opposite it's the incarnation he comes into our humanity and so it's coming out of this community out of this out of this experience as being human that he draws us to that next level so you know i think about it it's like it's not a disavowal of of everything that i come from it's it's taking it to the next level you know and it becomes very practical it's like fam- you know now it's you know we're we're heading into Um, the Christmas season and we're in Advent now. So it's like family traditions. I remember the trees we used to go cut down as kids and the lights we hung up and everything else. So I still want to do those kind of things. We still have those routines and those traditions and those rituals, but taking it to the next level, you know, to show the real reason why behind these things to show that we live for a higher purpose and, and to place everything in that context I think really safeguards our children and, and provides the path forward that continues in that light of, of Christ's revelation. Well
1: well said. Uh, very well said.
3: So
2: with your, your children today, do you see some things that you're able to, to do in their lives that you didn't have as a, as a child growing up that might make a difference?
3: Yeah, you know, I think, I think because um, my wife and I have a very clear and obvious emphasis and priority in prayer, our prayer lives are the most important thing, our spiritual lives. Um, where We talk about these things a lot more loosely and openly in its normal dinnertime conversation. And, you know, one thing that I've been fascinated with and developmentally to watch in our children is they, they are, their minds are so receptive to transcendent ideas mm. and you know it's like you know thinking about it theoretically it's like well you're supposed to go through these cognitive developmental stages before you can attain like sort of a, a, you know these kind of abstractions and it's really not true like my three-year-old's talking about death in a way that's like more profound <laughs> than you know right. i've ever learned in any book
2: right you know, right. And,
3: and you know the kids understand these concepts and you know, my, my six-year-old was next door with some neighbors who are a bit sort of, I guess, agnostic. I'm not really sure. And he was sort of investigating what their faith was. And he's like, the, the father was saying, yeah, we, we grew up Catholic, but, you know, now we're, uh, we go to church sometimes. And so my son, he's like, so you, you sort of believe in Jesus a little bit. <laughs> and he's like, I, I guess so. It just like cuts it down to the core, mm-hmm. you know, like these basic but most profound concepts. So I think because we are, are, have such facility with those concepts and conversations, and then we just raise our children in that atmosphere, they can absorb so much of it, even in some ways beyond what we're even saying. And, and then just to watch their little minds and hearts developing in that atmosphere is, is really profound.
2: Great.
1: Uh Dr. Greg, tell us a little bit more about uh your your discernment uh going into the Franciscan friars renewal uh kind of unpack that a bit for us and and then toward the tail end of of your time uh um in that ministry and with that order kind of how you discerned that next chapter.
3: Sure, yeah, I um you know, I was seeking in, in, in my own spiritual life, sort of my my sense of discernment was really about exploring what the deepest dimensions and desires of my own heart were really calling me to. It's like God exists within us and that's what discernment is, is to like really unpack what our deepest and most accurate um and 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 sort of authentic desires are. And and so for all my time in college, I just kept coming back to it. And it was, you know, I it was a colorful time of life. Like, and I was back and forth. I was dating, you know, then if I broke up with a girlfriend, then it was like, oh, I think I'm called to be a friar. So, <laughs> and then, you know, I met the next pretty girl and then I was on to, you know, now I must be called to marriage again. So, you know, it was like, and then eventually, um, I, uh, I just, I kind of, I graduated and I thought, well, after I graduate it must become so clear. And it still wasn't. I was talking to a priest and he was like, why don't you just go test it? You know, and it was one of those things where I let go of so many things holding me back that I just, as soon as I said yes to that, I was filled with unspeakable joy Mm -hmm. and my life just lit up and, you know, I was so happy to give everything away and I was so happy to go to the Bronx and to start, you know, this, this new dimension of life, this new chapter. And, um, and that joy was there for a good two years and long story short. I started to, you know, I was spending five hours of prayer a day and a lot of deep introspection, a lot of good spiritual direction, um, really good work with Father Benedict. And, and I started to like basically heal a lot of wounds that were in my heart. I mean, in front of the Blessed Sacrament for a few hours a day, like that's going to do something. And ultimately what I realized And you know, this is not to say that I wasn't in the right place, but I got to a point where I realized I needed to go to that place to heal the wound in my own heart, really coming from my own family background. And at the end of the day, I believed in the beauty of marriage. And I would certainly tell other people how beautiful marriage is. But I was afraid of something not working out and ending up hurting children the way that I had been hurt. And in some ways, my, my going to the friars was an almost kind of like safe, a safe way to avoid ever doing that to anybody and feeling that myself. So it was in that prayer and it was in that work with Father Benedict that I started to open those wounds up and heal those wounds. And I discovered that, um, you know, we're not determined by our past and these wounds can be healed and the grace of God is bigger than anything that might go wrong in time here and so he restored me to to a deeper sense of my real sonship in his fatherhood and so i realized that in that my deepest desire was actually to be married it -hmm. got harder and harder to live a vocation of celibacy wearing a habit living in that state and i was just kind of growing in this internal discord um, and I realized, like, I, I just can't keep going. So, I, you know, there was another year and a half of continual direction, prayer. It's not the kind of thing where you just leave on a whim because you have a bad day. But in, in, in real discernment, I was only in temporary vows at that point. So instead of renewing my vows before going into final vows, I realized that God was actually calling me to move on. And so that, that's what it was. It was like the way I pictured it is like looking into the depths of my heart and seeing what's in the bottom of my heart. And at first I thought it was this treasure chest with a vocation to celibacy in it. And then as the heal, as a healing occurred, it, it was like my image and prayer was that the bottom of the cave fell through. And I realized that wasn't really the deepest bottom. And it, and then I looked down and then it was the shining light coming from the deepest depths. And that was my true self and my true vocation, which was a call to marriage. And so it was a further, a further step into greater freedom to actually leave the friars, and then eventually, um, and then eventually, I met my wife and, and got married.
2: Now, with the friars, I know that uh, I'm among those who would say that Father Benedict Rochelle was a major influence in so many areas of my life. But I never met him. He's, you know, but he still is very dear to me. How, what was it like? Did did he really uh, affect you during this time in a positive way, even to maybe help uh, formulate your direction forward?
3: Oh, a hundred percent. He was the real deal. He practiced what he preached in his sleep in in, in his own time, but you know, by himself in, you know, he was just thoroughly authentically himself and a little salty. Uh-huh. You know, he's from New Jersey. Yeah. You know, so he had, he had a different, a little bit of an edge to him at times, but he knew how to temper it, how to play it. He knew exactly his audience. He knew exactly who he was with he could deal with Cardinal O'Connor, he could deal with Mother Teresa, and then he could deal with, deal with, you know, the old lady that lived next door in poverty. And, you know, all three of them would feel uh, better for themselves after an encounter with him. And there there were times that Mother Teresa was a bit of a difficult character sometimes to, to actually um, interact with. And and Cardinal O'Connor, I you know, all three of them now have, have passed on, so we can tell this story. But Cardinal <laughs> O'Connor would call Father Benedict and ask him to go pick up Mother Teresa because he didn't want to have to deal with her. <laughs> so he was like under obedience. Okay, Cardinal, under obedience, of course, <laughs> you know. But he, you know, he had this way about him. And then um as he would teach us in our in our novitiate, we would go spend time with him every week. And actually, I had already shown interest in psychology, so I was spending a little bit more time with him as he was sort of nurturing that part of the vocation that eventually the plan was I would take over sort of doing assessments and things like that for the brothers. So I spent a lot of time with him. Um, And just, I got to see all these interactions where um, you know, he was so subtle and so profound in his insight into what was happening in the present moment. And he taught me that form of prayer it was a practice of the present moment, abandonment to divine providence. And he lived it in a way that it's not just reading Jean-Pierre de Cousade or, you know, Brother Lawrence, where you read it and it feels really nice. And you're like, oh, this is great. I, you know, I trust, I surrender. And then you put the book down and then you're like, you know, anxious about traffic or being late to a meeting or you get in a fight with your wife or something. Like there's, you know, he was living it. and And while he was teaching it, you know, he would stop and he would just say, all right, brothers, look. And he would just like, look up in the sky and look at that bird. And he would be like lost in the moment.
0: That's beautiful.
3: You know, and then just like continue on. And you're like, this is, this is just a Thursday afternoon on the waterfront in Larchmont, New York. Like this is not like a, you know, we're not on Mm -hmm. pilgrimage. (laughs) Yeah. But it's, it's uh, you know, so, so those experiences profoundly impacted me. And actually, a major work that I do now, I developed this whole program called Catholic Mindfulness. I saw in the, the scientific work of mindfulness based stress reduction, it's very healthy for our brains. And so I always ask, like, what, if something's healthy scientifically, why? Like, how does that connect to our humanity? And I saw in that, this is like a manual for abandonment to divine providence. And so I put the two together to create this Catholic version of mindfulness. And he's the one who really taught me what that looked like. And so yeah, very, very, to this day, every day, I, I think about him, I pray to him, and, and he's deeply impacted me.
1: Dr. Gregg, uh, how were your parents um, in terms of, of their support or influence in terms of your, your uh, vocational journey?
3: Yeah, great question. It was interesting. Um, My, my dad had a really hard time with it at first. And uh, my mom was really supportive of it at first. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, through three and a half years, it's a lot that happens during that time. But my dad really came around. um, And the life of the friars are so joyful. You know, he he was worried, he kind of knew he had a father's intuition about me like kind of running away from something. And he couldn't necessarily articulate it where he was at, where I was at, where the family was at in those years. It it was, you know, it was more painful. Um, And it was tough to sort of articulate it that way. But and I think he was worried that I was running away from something. I wouldn't actually be healthy and happy. And so um, but over time, he saw like, I remember the first the first uh, month I joined and he he had no idea about these friars like this was not a part of our life. And he thought I was like a Harry Krishna in Central Park, like ringing a bell, selling flowers.
2: Uh huh. Yeah. And he
3: didn't know what the heck just happened to me. Like I was at Boston College, I was pre med, and then all of a sudden I transferred out to Steubenville, Ohio, and next thing you know, I'm shaving my head with a habit in the in the park. You know, like he doesn't. He's like <laughs> I don't know. He was a little concerned. You know, so it, it, he came around though through the experience, the life of the friar, sharing in the and the in the joy, and then and my mom. Had, you know, surprisingly, um, or maybe not, but she had a really hard time when I left the friars. Hmm. And so for her, she had built up like such an idea of my son, the priest and all this stuff. And then, uh, you know, so then in the years after I left, what I realized is there was so much pain from there, that period of my life and being a friar, you really have to sort of give everything over to God, not just your money, not just a future family but like all the concerns of your heart. And what I learned through experience was that even something that looks impossible is possible with God. And he loves us so much that he loves what's what we love. And actually if I give it to him and stop thinking that I can be in control of making this work out for the best, he can do a better job with it than I can. You know? So like in that time of my life, going to the chapel every day and, and, and submitting myself to his will, it was this, it was this also the submission of like, I don't know if my dad's ever going to accept this. I don't know how this is going to work with my mom. I don't know if they're ever going to heal their relationship. I don't know if my brothers are going to be okay. And I just watched over the course of three, four years, all these pieces fell into place and I didn't have to do anything. (laughs) It wasn't me controlling it. It was, but it was the desires of my heart and it was my prayer. And so after I left, even as I continued deepening my vocation, it was like a a, a continual gift of myself to God's will. And I saw even more than my mom, you know, we worked some stuff out and I continued to work stuff out with my dad. And actually my mom, uh, she passed away a few years ago from pancreatic cancer pretty, pretty abruptly. And um, it was just very clear God's hand in that whole thing. like from her diagnosis and, and, and her treatment into her passing, you know, just our life surrounded by friars, sisters, you know, lots of prayer, so many sort of like mini miracles that were happening along the way and reconciliations and <clears throat> all sorts of wonderful things. So, um, it, you know, it, there are definitely challenges along the way, but, um, you know, and they're still working themselves out in some ways, but, um, yeah, all things are, are, are well in his plan.
2: One of the things I love that you you brought out is that abandonment doesn't mean that the things that I'm giving up are not going to come back to me, but they're going to come back to me in God's way and in God's right. plan, and I may be more ready to receive them.
3: Yeah, exactly. It's, it's one of the hardest lessons, and it's like, you know, even if we trust that theoretically, we're still such uh, fickle creatures, you know, we just, we like, we want <laughs> it now. <laughs> And if it's not happening now, then we would sort of like, you know, fall into this illusion, like it's not really going to happen. But it, it is happening. It does happen. That's his promise. And it definitely he can definitely he will give it back. He wants to give it back. It's just he can do so much better with it. Sometimes it requires more than we can even see.
1: And Dr. Greg, as you were discerning not to renew vows with the uh, Franciscan friars, were you also discerning, you know, what the next step was going to be after you left?
3: Yeah, it was I mean, it was hard, but you know, for for me it was kind of clear because I had been working with Father Benedict and he was already doing some work down in Virginia at the Institute for Psychological Sciences. And so, some of the best time I spent with him was driving down to DC from New York with him, and then teaching a course for a week. And he was he was doing the spiritual integration course for the students there. And so, and I had already made connections there. Um, one of the professors, Paul Vitt, I had met him in New York, um, and and there was just a lot of interaction. And it, it was pretty much a no brainer for me at that point that that was going to be where I go, and and that was going to be the path. Like I wanted to pursue the doctorate in psychology specifically in this integrated fashion, um, and then go from there. In terms of marriage and my actual vocation, uh, I have no idea what was gonna happen. That was just completely in the dark, <laughs> but I couldn't I couldn't really think about that at that point. Sure.
2: Yeah, did that happen then in the context of your your studies there at uh in Arlington?
3: Yeah, it was right right at the end in my last year. So five years later. And, um, yeah, I had, um, it's, it's kind of a funny story and I use this now. I do, I do dating consultations with some of my young, young adults that I work with, but I, I, I decided to get really serious about, uh, meeting somebody at least if I was in DC, I knew I was moving up to New York. I figured, well, in God's time, but you know, while I'm here before I leave, uh, let me put in my last ditch effort here to, to see if God has somebody down here for me. So, um, and I started doing online dating. But, you know, the way that I had figured it out, being very analytical and also very psychological, I was just like, I'm going to come up with these rules. And it's not dating, it's meeting because you can't really date online, but you can meet the right person and use the online format to filter who you then go to meet up for a coffee or a drink or whatever. So I just, you know, that was my last year. I did a lot of that for about six months. I was meeting all sorts of people. And then uh, it was a great experience. I got to know myself really well in the context of. Interacting with others, and then um, you know, and then eventually uh, met my wife in Bethesda, Maryland. She walked into the restaurant. We were we were going to grab a drink, and almost immediately, I knew that this is probably the end for me in in this dating game. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was just going to uh, ask Dr. Greg as you were going through your doctoral studies um, there in uh, Northern Virginia, were you beginning to blueprint? Kind of the 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 early stages of what now is the Catholic Psych Institute. Um, can you just share a little bit about about how that has all come to fruition?
3: That's that's a really great question. Nobody, I don't think anybody's ever asked me that before. I you know I, I don't know if I'm embarrassed by this or proud of this, but I had bought the domain CatholicPsych.com a year before I graduated. Okay. So I was definitely starting to blueprint it. Yep. Um, and I had no idea what that even was going to mean. And I never like, there's no business formation in, in graduate psychology studies. You know, it's like, some re- for some reason, they like think you're just going to sort of graduate and then, you know, figure out how to sort of like start and run a business, which is ludicrous when you have a whole graduate master's in, in, you know, PhD programs built around how to run businesses. So I don't know, somehow that's supposed to just be easy if you have a doctorate in psychology. So I never had a blueprint, but my faith formation was everything that was necessary because having this discernment orientation, again, not sure if I'm embarrassed or proud of this, but I've never really had a, a business plan. It's, it's a very much spirit led business plan development. So every year is like a new surprise for me. And as my team grows, now I've realized like, that works when you're like a one man show or maybe even two or three people. And it's like inspiring that you're like led by the spirit. But when you have like 15 employees, like trying to figure out what the heck they're supposed to do, they don't want to hear about your inspirations. <laughs> they want to hear like, what am I supposed to do today? Oh. So it's a lot of a learning curve for me right now, figuring out how to actually manage teams. So back then I had it blueprinted in terms of the need for this integration. And at one point I was very clearly discerning two paths to sort of take the subtle route and just enter into secular psychology, carrying this, this, uh, this integrated anthropology and, and sort of being the vehicle for that through, you know, whatever I ended up doing, however I interact with my coworkers, how I have, you know, whatever, and the therapy that I provide, or do I, you know, wear this on my sleeve? And in my discernment at that time, again, had zero, you know, training or understanding of business or marketing or anything. I thought I was taking a really big hit in... Realizing, number one, I was a Franciscan friar. Like, I literally wore my faith on my sleeve and shaving my head and growing a beard and putting a habit on. So, like, that's my personality. I really can't just be subtle about this. And then I just felt the Holy Spirit telling me, like, just call it what it is. And I thought that that meant, like, I'm going to be attacked. I'm going to be, you know, pr- pretty much disregarded, not taken seriously. But if this is what God is calling me to, this is what I'm going to do. Little did I know after like two years trying to start a business and then reading some books and marketing and things like that, it's like to have a niche is actually like the best business move you can do. And that's ended up what happened. As in the first six months, I started, you know, going up and down Manhattan, knocking on every rectory door, getting to know every parish secretary I could meet and, and uh, trying to get access to father so I could give him my business card. And they loved it. And and people and they, they, they needed it. And I never realized how deep the need was for trustworthy psychology mm-hmm. from the priest perspective. But it was like in six months I had a full schedule. And and you know, in two years I had I had two trainees. And then, you know, now now here we are eight years later. We have 12 therapists, five offices, we're seeing people all over the world. And you know, I can't get new therapists fast enough to fit to fill our need. It's just overwhelming what kind of demand there is for the work we're doing.
2: Yeah, as a priest and pastor, I can just say amen to what you were just saying, that we are hungry for trustworthy psychologists who, in, in meeting with the people that we trust into their care, they really help them to be infused in their faith rather than have that faith kind of move to the side in order to deal with other issues. So, so thank yeah, you for it's, doing it's what you, you're dude. doing
3: oh i I appreciate that I appreciate that and and my my heart has been with the church from the beginning and and know uh, it's constantly i'm seeking new ways to serve the church, serve priests we have a lot of services that we offer specifically to priests and i mean especially now in our in our current sort of environment obviously priests bishops um there there's a lot of support necessary, and it's not exactly the most esteemed uh position to be in unfortunately in many ways and so yeah, we're we're doing what we can to, you know, from our angle, and and whatever little way that that means to to try to support support the church.
2: You know, Doctor Greg, uh, I'm intrigued with the fact that uh, being a psychologist, uh, you not only uh, have like a local practice, but you you touch a lot of people in other countries, and um, I'm guessing there's no doubt uh, in your mind that in the past nine months that's been the most unique and most challenging time, perhaps, in uh, your entire practice. Uh, here in the U.S., we've not only got a pandemic, we've got uh, racial tension, we've got a hotly contested national election. And so as a psychologist and a Catholic, uh, what's your assessment of our current condition?
3: Well, the, the biggest, highest, top-level assessment is that we've, we just we've lost God in so many ways in our culture and uh you know this this event these events the event of 2020 itself um is an opportunity to help people sort of distill down to the most basic fundamental building blocks of what makes life and i think that um it's it's really just helped people really clarify what they're here for what we're all about and so in a lot of ways i've seen people thrive uh, you know i 've seen businesses thrive i 've seen families thrive i 've seen many different elements of of flourishing and uh, and at the same time a lot of different struggles and difficulties and so it 's just it 's one of these sort of moments in history I think where we 're all shaken up out of some of the comfort that that we 've fallen into with patterns, maybe even some laziness in that to just really got, get shaken up and motivated to take a really good, long, hard look in the mirror and see see what's looking back at us.
2: Let me shift the conversation just a little bit because a lot of our listeners are those from um, Catholic schools, they're Catholic leaders, they are uh, of schools or perhaps teachers, campus ministers. And uh, as a psychologist, especially if we look at our teachers and what they're going through in the pandemic and the time that we have today, Uh, I'm just thinking about your integration as well as your mindfulness emphasis. What counsel or what encouragement would you give to Catholic teachers today in the schools?
3: I would say, you know, I think this is a time that, like I said, we're all being forced to look in the mirror. And there's a lot that we need to follow in terms of patterns and routines and uh, you know things that we 've inherited, like the way we do things, but there 's a lot of ways that some of those things maybe are up for uh, renewal and And my encouragement and we 're doing this ourselves i 'm doing this m- myself personally and within Catholic psych and in all the work that we do is is to take very seriously the call for renewal. and wh- what I mean specifically in the school system is if it feels like something needs to change. Maybe take that a little bit more seriously instead of thinking like, "Oh, what committee, what administration, what board is going to need to approve this and that." like everything's up for grabs right now, so grab what you can, and so you know we, we've been doing a lot of work with school systems. We developed a K through 12 curriculum for teaching Catholic mindfulness in the Catholic school system. Mm. And one of these areas has been social emotional functioning, social emotional health, like a lot, the last five years, there's been a certain zeitgeist around, we need to encourage this for our children, there's obviously a tremendous amount of mental health deficit that we're seeing in our kids, and it detracts from, uh, you know, the educational program. And so they're bringing in some programming, special, you know, uh, consultants, and pro you know, all these things. In a lot of these cases, there's Buddhist mindfulness coming in. I've heard from Catholic school administrators where there's literally Buddhist monks walking down the hallways to teach mindfulness to their kids. And now, like, I'm very sort of uh, charitable and diverse and open-minded to, you know, we, we explore, you know, the good of everything and we take what's good and we leave what's not and all that. And, and, and I interact with a lot of, of um, people from all different walks of life and faith. But there are some concerning pieces of a specifically Buddhist mindfulness practice that are being taught to children that can be even more disorienting because they're children. And so this is one piece where it's like, number one, it's wonderful to recognize the need for the social-emotional um, assistance. Number two, it's wonderful to be open-minded to say, what kind of new programming can we bring in here? But I would say, number three, like let's double down on the Catholic identity piece of this And let's say, like, is there an alternative that we can do both? Can we both stay Catholic and nurture the social-emotional needs of our children? And if we're doing it the right way, there should be a resounding yes. That would be the Catholic thing to do is to nurture the whole person, not just spiritually when we talk about the whole person, but also social-emotional needs within the school system. So that's just one example but there might be other things that are coming up for people along the way. It's like, why are we doing this that way, or why why do we have all these different meetings, or why is the in service done this way? Or, you know, a lot of things are being called into question now that say it just deserves a, a, a double take, maybe, and and maybe thinking about shifting some things.
1: Do you think that the the term mindfulness has been hijacked um, by kind of new age? Uh, hype and and sensibility, Dr. Greg. Did, did did you ever did you consider other nomenclature kind of when you were thinking about branding this? Um uh or how might how might Catholic schools who uh question for instance, does this is this gonna have a Buddhist tint to it, uh, overcome that?
3: Yeah that's a great question. And and you know Probably not. Well, I don't know. I think there's been some controversy over this. So, so, so controversy is always good for, for, <laughs> for marketing. <laughs> but um, maybe to the detriment of this program taking off more, um, I don't know. I, I have a little bit of a, a stubbornness, and especially in this intellectual formation, more sort of along the lines of like a Peter Kreeft, uh, you know, rationality. We, we need to call things what they are. And, and not give up words and not give up concepts based on feelings and, mm-hmm. um, you know, movements. So words are really important. And a word like, for instance, yoga, which can be also controversial more so, um, people try to develop these programs that are Catholic yoga. And that's, that's a really interesting problem because mm-hmm. yoga is a word that has a meaning, it's not an English word and it's specifically embedded within a Sanskrit and Hindu sort of, you know, worldview. And, and more specifically, it has to do with unity and the unity of all being and sort of like moving through these body movements into this oneness with all that is and everything else is an illusion. And all that's, that's the Buddhist worldview. That's all uh, the Hindu worldview. That's part of that as well. And, and these different trajectories that come into that concept. So, that's a, a nomenclature problem. And, and so when we looked at the word mindfulness, I really thought long and hard about this. And I thought, well, I think, I think that the concept of practicing the present moment has been hijacked.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: We have a deeper, longstanding Christian spirituality and tradition of being present. And in many saints, they use the word Mindful. Of course, not as a program, but it's just in passing. They talk about being mindful of the present moment. And then that did get hijacked. It got used anyways for the mindfulness-based stress reduction protocol, which goes back to 1979. It's John Kabat-Zinn. He was a Buddhist practitioner, and, and there's a long history there. But when I looked at what we're doing, I wanted to take it back. And so I want to call the thing what it is. It's an English word, Mindfulness. It has an English meaning, which is paying attention. And that is a faculty of the intellect, which we understand to be a God-given trait and makes us part of, part of what makes us in the image of God. So like nowhere in here is the problematic connotation that would come from using a word like yoga. So that's why I'm kind of fighting to hold on to that word. And I developed Catholic mindfulness. And now when I teach it, Mm -hmm. I say, you know, mindfulness is sort of amoral. We need to talk about which system of mindfulness. So, if it's Buddhist mindfulness, let's call it Buddhist mindfulness. If it's Catholic mindfulness, we call it Catholic mindfulness. And then I'm willing to have that conversation with as many people that I need to or want to. And I've created all sorts of videos and booklets and different things to try to, you know, I, try, I want to reclaim the word. <laughs> <laughs>
2: sure. Yeah, I, I really like that kind of uh, perspective. Um, the idea of, the sacrament of the present moment and being mindful of the present moment, uh, I'm thinking about what I encounter daily right now as a leader of a Catholic school. Uh, In fact, we've developed a motto at St. Michael, uh, pivot and pray the St. Michael way. And (laughs) because everything seems to be changing all of the time. And of course, as as a whole, as as, uh, Catholic schools, we see a, a downward trend and Uh, you know, admissions and attendance and all kinds of things going on. As a psychologist, what would you say to me? What would you say to other leaders about what we need to do to really keep our steady course uh, during these times?
3: Yeah, I, you know, recognizing my audience and also the listeners, you know, I know there's a lot of administrators and people responsible for a lot of things, but you know, my, my, um, my encouragement to you and and to anybody listening in similar positions is is to um, renew your heart and remembering who 's in charge and and who 's responsible and who it falls back on who to blame you know was it saint uh, was it Saint Pius the Twelfth who was it that said at, at the end of every night he went to bed and said, "I did what I could for today, but it 's your church i 'm going to bed." Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the, the more responsibility you have, the bigger the project and the bigger the problems, the, the, the heavier the responsibility is to put, put all of that in its proper place. And I think that, you know, Martin Seligman is a psychologist who, who uh, developed positive psychology and he talks about flourishing. And one of his five factors of flourishing is to, to have an awareness that there is a higher power whose shoulders it all falls on. And it's not yours. Mm -hmm. In order to have resilience in the face of trauma, we need to not believe that it all falls on our shoulders, that we're not carrying the weight of the world. And I think that's part of what this, this year has done for us is to like really shake us out of that illusion that we're in control. And more so now than ever, we can actually take consolation and have hope in that. It's like, as bad as this looks, as bad as it gets, even if it gets worse, it's not mine to, to take full responsibility for. I give it up to you, God. So pivot Amen. and pray the St. Michael way. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Dr. Greg, uh, thank you. This has been a, a wonderfully enriching uh, conversation. Um, I greatly appreciate your time and for what you're doing uh, with the church through Catholic Psych. Um, it's wonderful ministry.
3: Well, thank you so much. It really has been a joy to see you and to be here with you.
2: Yeah, thank you, Dr. Greg. What a, what a joy to uh, gain this kind of a fresh perspective. And I think uh, for our listeners and our, those that are viewing us, uh, that it, it's really good to kind of take a different view even of the circumstances in which we find ourselves and realize that this can be an opportunity uh, for some self-awareness. So thank you.
3: Amen. Absolutely. Thank you, Father. It's great to meet you.
2: And uh, also, thank you to our production interns, John Sampson and Alex Shire, along with our production supervisor, Mr. Jack Alsbach, for producing this podcast. May God bless you.
0: We'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode of Follow to Lead, a production of the Duke and Altum Schools Collaborative. To learn more about finding your own path in your journey of faith or for more information on what we discussed in today's episode, you are invited to follow us on social media and visit us on the web at diaschools.org. To provide a one-time donation or monthly pledge, please visit our website. Your gift will aid us in providing up-to-date information, additional resources, and other support on how to take Catholic education to a higher level. We look forward to helping you follow God's call to lead others to God right here on Follow to Lead.